Today's podcast sponsor is the Barnard Medical Center. The Barnard Medical Center combines medical care with the latest advances in prevention and nutrition to help create a health care plan designed just for you. You're listening to the Ordinary Vegan Podcast, where we teach you everything you need to know about adopting a plant-based diet full or part-time. Our goal is to empower you to live a long and healthy life. You can find today's show at OrdinaryVegan.net or on iTunes. If you have any questions, please send an email to questions at OrdinaryVegan.net. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Ordinary Vegan Podcast number 87. If we haven't met, my name is Nancy Montori, and I am the founder of Ordinary Vegan, the website and this podcast. I advocate a plant-based diet for health and wellness, for animal welfare, and for the environment. When we stop eating meat and dairy, not only do we reduce our risk of cancer, type 2 diabetes, obesity, and heart disease, we also contribute to a healthy planet because shifting to more plant-based foods is essential to combating climate change, ocean dead zones, and soil, air, and water pollution, to name just a few. According to a report from the World Economic Forum, the number one risk to humanity in the next decade is the environment. These global risks include extreme weather events like floods and storms, extreme heat waves, major biodiversity losses, ecosystem collapse, and human-made environmental damage and disasters. So, the fight for a livable planet is something we all have to contribute to in every way possible. So, today's podcast focus is on the environment, people who call themselves environmentalists, and a fascinating, insightful, and jaw-dropping interview with Nathaniel Stinnett. Nathaniel Stinnett is the founder and executive director of the Environmental Voter Project, a nonpartisan nonprofit that uses big data and behavioral science to identify non-voting environmentalists and then get them to vote. Dubbed the voting guru by Gris Magazine, Stinnett was named one of America's 50 environmental visionaries, and he is a frequent expert speaker on cutting-edge campaign techniques at top universities and campaign management trainings. He has held a variety of senior leadership and campaign manager positions on the U.S. Senate, congressional, state, and mayoral campaigns, and he sits on the board of advisors for MIT's Environmental Solutions Initiative. About 20 million registered voters in the United States list the environment as their top priority. But compared to other voters, they're most likely to stay home on election day. I hope you are as surprised about that as I am. Nathaniel Stinnett will discuss what it might mean for environmental policies if people who care about the environment actually showed up at the polls. And he provides us with some reasons they don't, among other things. Before we get started, 
I would like to thank today's sponsor, the Barnard Medical Center. The Barnard Medical Center combines medical care with the latest advances in prevention and nutrition to help create a health care plan designed just for you. They have a team of board-certified physicians, nurse practitioners, and registered dietitians who provide state-of-the-art medical care and are available via telehealth to help treat and prevent diabetes, heart disease, high blood pressure, and other chronic conditions. Use their telehealth services to receive medical care from the comfort and safety of your own home. To set up your first appointment, call 202-527-7500. That's 202-527-7500. Thank you, Barnard Medical Center. Now, let's welcome Nathaniel Stinnett. Hi, Nathaniel, and welcome to the Ordinary Vegan Podcast. Thank you, Nancy. It's such a pleasure to be here with you. Thank you so much for being here. We appreciate it. My first question to you is, what is the Environmental Voter Project, and what kind of work are you guys doing? The Environmental Voter Project is a really odd environmental nonprofit, and we're, we're odd for the following reasons. We don't do a lot of the stuff that your typical environmental group does. So, for instance, we don't lobby for particular policies. We don't endorse political candidates. We don't even try to persuade people to care more about climate or the environment. All we do is we find people who already care deeply about climate and the environment, yet they aren't voting, and we turn them into better voters. That's it. A a good way to think of us is we're not in the mind-changing business. We are in the habit-changing business. We find people who don't need their opinions changed. They're already with us. They're dyed-in-the-wool super environmentalists. They just need their behavior change. They need to go from not voting at all to becoming consistent voters. So we're we're just laser-focused on that, on finding non-voting environmentalists and turning them into better voters. How many states is the Environmental Voter Project in, and what is the criteria? We are currently working in 12 states, and very quickly, those states are in the Southwest, Colorado, Nevada, Arizona, New Mexico, in the Southeast, Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, and Virginia, and in the Northeast, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and Maine. And as you'll probably notice many of them are swing states, but not all of them. And that's because our criteria is not running around after the shiny object. We don't, we don't move from one important election to another. We have a longer term goal. Our goal is to change the electorate. Our goal is to so dramatically increase the number of environmental voters, not non-voters, but voters that we move the dial on policymaking, not just on the federal level, but also on the state and local level. And so our criteria is, first and foremost, we go into states where there are huge populations of non-voting environmentalists. We need that big denominator, Nancy. We need that, that big target audience so that we know if we do our job, if we start getting these people to start voting, it'll have a really, really big impact. And then the second criteria is in all of these states, whether they're swing states or not, there is significant room for movement 
on environmental and climate policymaking, not just on the federal level, but at the state and local level too, because because all of those levels are important if you really care about really care about addressing the climate crisis, getting clean air, getting clean water. So, do those states um, that you mentioned have more environmentalists than other states? Well, they have more non-voting environmentalists, which is a really important distinction, because there are some states that have lots of environmentalists, like say. Minnesota. But the truth is, a lot of them already vote. So an organization like ours, which is just laser focused on turning non-voters into voters, wouldn't really have a big impact on policymaking in a place like Minnesota. But the 12 states that I mentioned to you, Nancy, what each of them have is a disproportionately large population of non-voting environmentalists. So take Arizona, for instance. We've identified close to 300,000 already registered to vote environmentalists in the state of Arizona who list climate or other environmental issues as their top priority, yet they have never voted in a single election before, not a single one. And that is just an enormous potential pool of political power. And if we can even just get 5 or 10 or 15% of them to start becoming consistent voters, that will not only have an enormous impact on the federal level, but also on the state and local level. In a, in a huge city like Phoenix, where municipal policymaking around transportation issues and energy consumption and traffic can make a huge, huge impact on how water is used, how land is used, and how we address climate change. But it makes no sense to me that, you know, someone who cares that much about the environment and can affect, by voting, environmental policy, why wouldn't they vote? Yeah. Boy, do you ask the right question, Nancy. Why why on earth aren't these people voting? And to be totally honest, it, it was it was very hard for me to wrap my head around it when I first started the Environmental Voter Project, now almost four years ago. Because I I came to this problem from the political sphere. I I didn't come to to starting an environmental nonprofit as someone who had spent his career in the environmental movement. I had always cared about these issues, but I came to this from the political world. I had always run political campaigns, and I was deeply frustrated by the fact that very few voters in polls listed climate or the environment as their top priority. But as I started to dig through the data, I realized, wait a second, the reason so few voters list climate or the environment as their top priority is not because we have a persuasion problem. It's not because we haven't convinced enough people to care about these issues. Actually, there are tens of millions of Americans who deeply care about these issues. No, it's a behavioral problem. It's a voting problem. These people exist. They're not just they're, they're just not doing this one impactful thing. And I'd be lying to you, Nancy, if I said we have a really good idea as to why these people aren't voting. It's one of the hardest things in in any social science to figure out why someone does not take an action. We're much easier at figuring out how to get people to take particular actions. But I'll tell you the two things we don't know, or or I'm sorry, I'll tell you the two things we do know when it comes to why environmentalists 
tend to vote less often than other people. The first is there's a simple demographic correlation going on here, by which I mean people who tend to care deeply about environmental issues are more likely to be people of color, they're more likely to be young rather than old, and they're more likely to make less than $50,000 a year than more. And so what do those three demographic groups that I just mentioned have in common? Poor people, people of color, and young people? Well, they all vote less often than your average American. So one thing that's simply going on here is just that the types of people who tend to care about environmental issues just vote less often than, than other Americans. But that's not the only thing that's going on. Because even when you drill down within those subgroups, there's still a turnout gap. So if you only look at young people, environmentalists still vote less often than other young people. If you only look at Latinos, environmentalists vote less often than other Latinos. So something else is going on there. And that gets to the second thing that we know that's going on. As you probably know even better than I do, for generations, the environmental movement has viewed environmental activism in a very apolitical way. So if someone wanted to have an impact on the environment, they viewed it as, okay, I'm going to change the way I get to work, or I'm going to change the type of electricity I consume, or I'm going to change how I eat. And I know I don't need to convince you how important those decisions <laughs> are. They're extremely important. But what all of those things are not are political. Whereas if you look at other issue constituency groups, like people who care about gun rights or people who care about immigration or people who care about reproductive rights, well, they view those things as inherently political. I mean, if you, if you care about gun rights, you vote like it's your job. Whereas in the environmental movement, we haven't always viewed environmental activism as being political. And so that's another thing that's going on here. And we really need to change our mindset around that. So how do you do that? And how do you, you know, change the mindset? So that's a great question. And it's really a two-step process. The first, I'm sorry, I, I should say it's really a, a three-step process. The first is identification. We, we work with data scientists to individually identify based on voter file records and census data and other publicly available data. We individually identify who these super environmentalists are. And then we cross-reference that information with public voter files to figure out which of these people vote and which of them don't vote. And then we only target these non-voters. And then to get to your question, how do we turn them into better voters? Well, because we know these people are already with us after we've identified them, that opens up the entire world of behavioral science to us because then we can we can be completely agnostic with our messaging, Nancy. I mean, we could, we could talk about chocolate chip cookies at that point <laughs> if it was the best way to get these people to vote. And what we've realized and what a whole generation of behavioral psychologists and behavioral economists have realized is that the best way to get someone to take an action is to not necessarily treat them as someone who is a rational actor going through a transaction. I mean, surprise, surprise, most people don't walk into the act of voting 
thinking that their one vote is absolutely going to determine the outcome of the election. I mean, come on. We all know deep down that there is an infinitesimally small likelihood of our one vote making a difference. No, the real reason many people vote, whether they want to admit it or not, is because they've decided at some point in their lives that this is who they want to be. They want to be the type of person who is a voter. They want to be civically engaged or they want to be involved in their community. And so what we do with the Environmental Voter Project is we treat people that way. We treat them as social beings. We try to figure out what kind of person do they want to be? What societal norms are they buying into? And how can we leverage that to turn them into a better voter? And so what that translates to on the ground, Nancy, is sometimes like things that, to be totally honest, are completely juvenile. I mean, we use peer pressure. We will send text messages to these non-voting environmentalists that say things like, hey, Nancy, did you know last time there was an election, 73 people on your block of Main Street turned out to vote? Just like the type of stuff you would have heard on the playground in fourth, in fourth grade. But it works. It works. Because human beings are societal beings. And we look around at our friends and our family members and our neighbors to figure out what is acceptable behavior. And if we can leverage that, if we can use peer pressure, or if we can use forms of social pressure to try to make people more likely to vote, well, you're darn right we're going to do it. And we have seen in the experiments that we've run, I mean, we're sending turnout through the roof, through the roof. And then the third thing, I know this is a long answer, but the third thing that we do is habit reinforcement. As you likely know, Nancy, from the field that you're in, when you're trying to change someone's behavior, you can't just talk to them every two or four years, right? Right, of course. But that's what we, that's what we do in politics, right? We think, oh, I want to get someone to vote more often, so whenever there's a big, sexy federal election, I'm going to talk to them. Well, that doesn't work. And so what we do at EVP is whenever there's an election, local, state, federal, primary, general, we're talking to these people to try to turn them into better voters. So are you calling them? Are you, did you used to do house-to-house canvassing, uh, or is this through social media advertising? I mean, how do you actually do it? Yeah, so all of the above, all of the above. Yes, before the pandemic, we used to do door-to-door canvassing. We are no longer doing that. Uh, but we have over 4,700 volunteers around the country who help us call and text these non-voting environmentalists using our behavioral science-informed messaging to turn them into better voters. We are also sending them digital advertisements and direct mail. And we are using, we're, we're benefiting from hundreds of experiments and randomized control trials that we've been running over the past three years. And so we know not just what messages are most likely to turn these non-voters into more consistent voters, but also which ones work best with different subgroups. We know, oh, we're going to use message A with when we're texting African-American males, but we're going to use message B when we're sending letters to Latina grandmothers and message C when we're sending, when we're doing phone calls to white suburban 40-year-olds. And so we, we have a great, great community of volunteers who help us reach out to these voters, but we also arm them 
with a messaging that we know is going to work best. Okay, so I'm sure we have some non-voting environmentalists listening to this podcast right now. If you had a couple of minutes with them, what would you say? So the first thing and most important thing I would say is this. Who you vote for is secret. Everybody knows that. We grow up understanding that who you vote for is secret. But what most people don't understand is that whether you vote or not, whether you cast a ballot in any election, big or small, that is public record. It is public record. And so that's important for the following reasons. First, don't view your vote as a transaction. You're not going there to add your one vote to a a, a tally of millions that may or may not have a difference. No, by voting, you're actually doing something much more powerful. And that is, you are making sure that your voice is heard. Because as someone who has run dozens of political campaigns, let me tell you how every single one of them starts. It starts with a bunch of people in a conference room opening up their laptops, looking at public voter files to see who is likely to vote in that election and who isn't. And if you're not registered to vote, they don't care about you. If you're registered but you never show up, they also don't care about you. If you're registered but you only vote in, say, presidential elections, well, they don't care about you if they're running for governor. They only care about you if you have a history of casting a ballot in the particular election that that politician is trying to win. And so what that means is that your vote not only matters, it is quite literally the only thing that matters. Because the dirty little secret about politics is because of the public nature of the voter file, politicians literally know by name and street address who votes and who doesn't vote. And you better believe they couldn't possibly care less about the priorities of non-voters. And they literally know who you are. And so even if you write your dog's name in on the ballot, for God's sake, vote. Vote in every election because that's your ticket to becoming a first-class citizen. Those are the only people whose opinions matter in this country. So you have to be a voter or else you are, are ensuring that no one who makes policy at any level of government ever pays attention to you. Wow. That's very powerful. Um, in, in the 2016 presidential debate, uh, there were no questions about climate change, which is, you know, shocking. Do you think environmentalists don't vote because they don't feel there is a candidate that cares about climate change? Like if there were candidates, would they be more likely to vote? So it's a great question. Uh, and first, because you bring up a, a really interesting data point there, Nancy, I, I, I can't let that go without comment. You're absolutely right. There were zero questions about climate change in the 2016 presidential debate. And you know why? Heading into the 2016 presidential election, when you polled likely voters, only 2% of them, only 2% of them listed climate or the environment as their top priority. And so I know why none of the candidates or debate moderators or media wanted to talk about climate change. It's because voters weren't demanding it. I mean, who on earth would ever supply any product when the marketplace isn't demanding it? In the 2016 presidential election, 
voters did not want politicians to talk about climate change. So they didn't. But here's the thing. The reason why voters didn't list climate or the environment as a top priority is because all of the people who cared about the environment were sitting at home. They weren't voting. Our research shows that 10.1 million already registered to vote environmentalists sat out the 2016 presidential election. 10.1 million in an election that was decided by 77,000 votes in three states. So to get to your question, are some of them maybe not voting because they don't see politicians talking about their issues? Yes. Yes. When we do some research, we hear people saying that. But I want to be clear, Nancy, I, I, I don't want to stress. I don't want to overstress that because the truth is when you poll people who do vote, when you poll people who vote all the time, even for library trustee and city council, they also think that politicians don't talk about the issues that they care about. And so I think we need to be careful about trying to discern whether people are giving excuses about why they don't vote or actual causal reasons for why they don't vote. It's really hard. As I mentioned before, it's one of the hardest things in social science to, to figure out why someone's not voting. But what we do know is this. If environmentalists show up, if they do start voting, politicians will trip over themselves to try to appeal to them. Because since 2016, since that moment in time when only 2% of voters listed climate or the environment as their top priority, that number has gone up and up. It was 7% in the 2018 midterms. Heading into 2020, it had gotten up to 12%. And surprise, surprise, you started seeing all of these Democratic presidential candidates literally organize their entire campaigns around one issue, and that was climate change. I mean, politicians go where the votes are. It's, I know it sounds cynical, but it's the, it's the simple arithmetic of how elections work. Like either you go where the votes are or you don't get to be a politician anymore. And so it's incumbent upon us, we who care deeply about the environment, not to sit and wait for the perfect candidate, but to show up. And believe me, the politicians will follow because there is nothing, nothing that motivates a politician more than the prospect of winning or losing an election. Believe me, if environmental voters show up, politicians will, will, will run after them to try to appeal to them. Here in the United States, we have less than 40 days until our next presidential election. And because of COVID-19, there will hopefully be mass mail-in voting. Do you think that gives um, you an advantage to get the environmentalists out, or is it a disadvantage? Does your data show any difference in voting behavior between voting in person or by mail? It absolutely gives us an advantage for multiple reasons. One, the data shows from this past spring and summer when there was a lot of mail-in voting and also expanded early voting, that overall turnout went up among all types of voters, but progressive voters and environmentalists in particular had disproportionately large boosts in turnout. So what we're seeing is the easier it is to vote, that is always going to disproportionately boost progressive voters writ large, and, and included in that is certainly environmental voters. The second thing is, not just because of mail-in voting, 
but also because of expanded early voting, there are just more touch points. There are more opportunities to make someone more likely to vote. Because if we, if we go back in time four years ago or eight years ago, you really only had one window to turn someone from a non-voter into a voter. And that was the lead into election day. The lead into election day, and a lot of states didn't even have early in-person voting. Well, now you have multiple moments in time, Nancy, to increase someone's likelihood of voting. I mean, we text them or call them to help them sign up for vote by mail. Then we text them or call them to say, hey, Nancy, your ballot's about to arrive. Then we text them and call them to say, hey, I just want to make sure you got your ballot, Nancy. Then we text them and call them to say, hmm, I just checked in with a local election authority. It looks like you haven't returned your ballot. Then we let you know, oh, in-person early voting is about to start. Here are the Dropbox locations. Then we let them know, oh, election day is about to arrive. You got to vote if you haven't done so already. And so whereas we used to just have this one opportunity to push people out the door and get them to vote, now we've got this six, seven, in some states, even eight-week-long window to help these people vote. And that is always going to advantage a constituency like the environmental movement where we have a turnout problem. Other issue groups don't have a turnout problem. They're trying to persuade their people to vote for the right person. And so expanded opportunities to vote don't advantage those groups. But for the environmental movement, where we have millions of non-voting environmentalists sitting on the sidelines, wow, is this a great opportunity for us. We have uh, 208 million registered people to vote, right? Around there, 208 million. What, yep. is, what is your prediction for uh, turnout for our presidential election? I think we're going to break records, Nancy. Uh, so in 2016, 139 million people voted. I think we are almost definitely going to see over 150 million people vote. Almost definitely. And that's for a few reasons. One, as I just said, it is just so much easier for people to vote than it has been in previous elections. They have more opportunities. Two, we live in, I'm sure I, you know, this comes as no news to you. We live in a really politically heated moment in time. Like, oddly enough, there have been plenty of presidential elections where people have just sort of tuned out. Well, boy, you can't do that now. And three, we're seeing data from this spring and summer where turnout is breaking records in primaries. And so that all of that points towards record-breaking turnout. Now, it might take a while to count those ballots. We might not know that we've hit 150 million until two or three or four weeks after Election Day. But I am, I am pretty darn confident that we're going to break records this time around. Boy, I hope so. That sounds great. Nathaniel, my last question is, what ways can people get involved with the Environmental Voter Project? And what is your advice to those looking to join the climate fight besides voting? <laughs> right, right. Uh, so you can go to environmentalvoter.org and help in any number of ways. First, sign up to volunteer. It's a really, really easy process. You sign up to volunteer. You'll immediately get an email that helps you sign up for an online training webinar, after which you can call and text these non-voting environmentalists from the comfort of your own home. 
It's really, really simple. Second thing is you can follow us on social media. Uh, we are Enviro underscore voter on Twitter or on Facebook. You can donate to support our nonpartisan efforts. There are a whole bunch of ways to get involved. And I, I would really encourage everybody to go to environmentalvoter.org. And to answer your second question, Nancy, how to get involved in the climate movement? Well, you said it. Obviously, be a voter. That, that is first and foremost. But the second thing I would say is don't feel like you have ever, ever, ever been left behind. For obvious reasons, scientists and other people in the environmental movement talk about deadlines. They talk about important thresholds that we can't cross. And I get it. I understand why they talk about it. But today and tomorrow and five years from now and 10 years from now, there will still be an opportunity to fight to make things better. You have not missed the boat today. You have not missed the boat tomorrow and you won't have missed the boat next year. So at any moment in time, when you wake up and you think, you know what? I'm going to start taking this seriously. I'm going to get in the game. I promise you, you will be able to make a difference. And what's more, Nancy, not only will you make a difference, I also promise you, it'll just make you feel better emotionally. It is so important in this scary moment that we're all living through to just feel like you're doing something. It is so important. And my guess is many of your listeners understand this. Many of your listeners obviously understand the importance of veganism. And it isn't because if one person changes their diet, it automatically changes the course of history. Like, no, of course that doesn't happen. But it does have a small impact. And moreover, it makes you feel better. And it makes you provide an example to other people that they can also change their lives. And so I would just encourage all of your listeners, get in the game. It will make you personally feel better. You will have an impact. And perhaps most importantly, you'll provide an example to your friends and your peers so that they start doing it too. Great advice, Nathaniel. Thank you for spending your valuable time with the Ordinary Vegan community today. I really appreciate it. Well, it's my pleasure, Nancy. Thank you so much, not just for this podcast, but for all of the work that you do every day. Thanks. Thank you for joining me today. I hope today's podcast inspires you to vote for the environment. For recipes and inspiration, follow me on Instagram and Facebook. Additionally, you can find my new book, The Easy Five Ingredient Vegan Cookbook, and all my vegan CBD products from hemp on my website, ordinaryvegan.net. CBD oil from hemp has shown strong promise in helping people build an immune system that is fortress strong. Hope it can help you. Also, please share this podcast so our community can grow. And if you have time, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. The more reviews we receive, the better chance of spreading the compassion one plant-based meal at a time. Please stay strong and stay well. Till next time. Thanks for joining our plant-based community today. Together, we can accomplish great things. Please subscribe so you don't miss any of Ordinary Vegan's recipes and plant-based tips. If you have any questions or feedback, 
email us at questions at ordinaryvegan.net. Until next time.